0: Well, good morning. (laughs) Linda was referring to a booklet. I'm reading the Ephesians booklet in Korean this morning. Yes, Last night I was reading it in simplified Chinese, but I've got that under my belt now. If you uh, do read simplified Chinese, we have a copy out there for you. It's also in traditional Chinese, Korean, and English. It's a great resource for you to walk through the book of Ephesians for us, Ephesians 4 through 6. You can do that individually or do it in group. So pick up a copy, and if possible, make a donation of $4 just to cover the costs. One other announcement, uh, October 2nd, 6.30 p.m. It's a Sunday night. We'll be gathering here for worship and prayer. And so I just want to put that on your calendar and you'll hear more about that next week. October 2nd, 6.30 p.m., a night of worship and prayer. How do we walk as one? That's the question this morning. How do we walk as one? You know, there are moments in the history of the church when we feel like we are on the margins, when we don't fit into the wider stream of where society is going. And then God's people gather and we receive a new vision. About 10 days ago, uh, young adults gathered at the University of British Columbia, university students, young adults from different ministries that are active at UBC and various churches. They gathered for a time of worship, a time of praying for one another, of hearing the Word of God. And after the Word had been preached... The university president got up, the UBC president, and he said, okay, I'm not going to give my normal presidential address. I'm going to tell you my own story. And he said, when I was in university, I was in a really dark place. And I was loved by two fellow students in my dorm. They led me to Jesus. And he challenged those young adults to be that presence at UBC this year. Be that presence in the lives of those that you interact with, that you go to class with, that you live with. Share the love of Jesus with your fellow students. So a common vision. They worship together. They pray together. And they say, okay, we're here for a purpose. We're going to reach this campus for Jesus. What a wonderful moment, right? Why don't we experience that more often? that sense of unity, that kind of vision, being the church in our day. The gospel, it not only encourages us toward oneness, it provides for us a living foundation, a living foundation for that oneness and a path toward oneness. So Ephesians chapter four, verse one. Ephesians four, verse one. I therefore... One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Paul begins, I therefore. Well, again, what is the therefore, therefore? For three chapters, Paul has been talking about the eternal purposes of God, these eternal purposes that are unfolding in history. He says in chapter one, God is to be praised, to be glorified. For blessing us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God chose us for holiness, to be holy in his presence. And that holiness is actually lived out in relationship. We've been predestined to be adopted into God's family. This from before the foundation of the world. We were were dead. We were completely dead in sin. But through Jesus Christ, we've been made alive. We've been redeemed. We've been forgiven. We're a new creation. We're not here by chance. God created us in Christ Jesus for good works. And so God wants us to walk into those works. And part of that work is to be one family. The new creation is not just for us as individuals, it is for us as God's people. There is a purpose for us to be together. We are not just here to gather, we are here on a mission. We were alienated from God, we didn't know God, we were without hope and without God in the world, but God, through Jesus, reconciled us to himself so that we might be reconciled to one another. Live out that reconciliation in love. Here we are, Willingdon Church. And God has called us from many different places around the globe to be one. God has revealed to us the mystery of his will. The mystery of his will is that history is going in a direction and all things will be united in Christ. Christ. And so the church is to be an image of that reality to a watching world. We're we're a foretaste of what is coming. We're not on the wrong side of history. We're on the right side. We are under the lordship of Christ, and Christ will unite all things in him. So based on this doctrinal teaching, this is chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, Based on this doctrinal teaching, Paul will now make some practical application. He moves from what God has done to what we must be, to what we must do. He he moves from mind-stretching theology that we struggle to get our heads around to practical, everyday, down-to-earth life. The implications of the gospel for singles, for those that are married, for family, for the workplace. Verse 1. I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. Paul uses the emphatic personal pronoun. I. And he's, he's speaking out of apostolic authority. He says I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. He is a, a prisoner of Christ. That's one of the meanings. He has entrusted himself completely to Jesus. He's also a prisoner for the Lord. For the sake of the gospel. You'll remember that he was in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And he had this vision. He carried this vision that Jews and Gentiles should be one in the church. And he was almost lynched by a mob for that, and he was imprisoned. That's why he's sitting in a prison cell and writing this letter, because of the gospel that he's living for. And so he can very authentically call those who read this letter to live in the way that he is living. And it's interesting that he doesn't see his circumstances being completely unjust, He's a prisoner for the Lord. And so maybe his society, the Greeks and the Romans and the Jews are saying, Paul, you're actually on the wrong side of history. But he understands that he is under the Lord of history. And that where he is, is according to God's will. Daniel chapter 4, I think. Paul would resonate with these words of Nebuchadnezzar. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? For all his works are right and his ways are just. So from his place of confinement in God's presence, Paul is worshiping God. And he's teaching his readers, he's praying for them, and now he will exhort them. If you're a teacher, there's a good trio. Instruction, prayer, exhortation. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He urges them. It's a word of exhortation, and there's warmth in this word. Paul knows his readers. He knows who he's writing to. He knows what they are facing. He's calling them to a walk, to a way of life. That word walk, it'll come up over and over again as we read through chapters 4, 5, and 6. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling. That word worthy is an interesting word. It means to walk in a way that is equivalent with your calling. Your way of life should be balanced with your calling. It should reflect your calling. It should be consistent with what you've been called to. Well, the obvious question is, what have we been called to? Well, again, going back to chapters 1 through 3, we have been called to receive the blessings of salvation. If we are in Christ, then we have been elected to walk in holiness. And that happens in relationship. We've been predestined for adoption into this family, God's family predestined to hope in Christ, to be sealed by the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of what we will inherit. For the praise of God's glory. We've been called to experience the power of God, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. And so that power abides in us by the Spirit and enables us to walk in unity. Called to be seated with Christ in the heavenly places, reigning with Christ, New creation, called to be a new creation, called to walk in the good works that God prepared for us, called to be a new creation as God's people. That word church, it means the called out ones. So we were in the world, and each one that is here, if you are a believer in Christ, then you have been called out of the world and called into something. The family of God, we're one body the dwelling place of God, with freedom of access to the Father by one Spirit. Now this is profound. In chapter 3, Paul says that we are called to proclaim to the principalities and powers that it is a new day, that something has happened in Jesus. Through our life together, we are to manifest the richly diverse wisdom of God. And so, When we gather as God's people, whether we are in a small group or a larger gathering like this one, or some gathering like a UBC campus gathering where people are coming together from different churches, we are to manifest something to the powers of the air about God's wisdom. And it is to be a reminder to the powers of the air that yes, one day all things will be united in Christ. We're a foretaste. Of that, we're called to know the love of Christ and to be filled with all the fullness of God, called to live with hope for life eternal. So, it's not just a call to good theology, it's not just a call to good moral action, it's actually a call to experience God Himself. How do we walk in a way that matches our calling? We walk in a manner worthy of our calling with three graces of the Spirit. Paul talks about that in verse 2. Walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So, the unity doesn't begin with structures. It begins with our character, with the transformed character. The fruit of the Spirit. The first grace is Humility. Humility. Lowliness of mind instead of pride or high-mindedness. You know, in the ancient world, humility was not valued. No one wanted to be humble. Humility was associated with servitude. It was associated with being a slave. If you were humble in relation to someone that you considered to be of equal status or of lower status, well, that was just suspect. What was valued was pride. Pride. Life was all about honor. That was true for the Greeks, for the Romans, for the Jews. It was all about more honor, more status, more fame. Pride was what was prized. And you might ask, well, what's the problem with pride? Pride is at the heart of all discord. You see, I have a hard time liking those that do not honor me the way that I think I should be honored. I tend to like those people that respect me in a manner that is consistent with the respect that I think I deserve. Pride is often a key factor in relational conflict. But Jesus calls us to a different way of life. In the ancient world, humility received a complete redefinition. And how did that happen? Ellen Dixon, a professor from Australia, he wrote his dissertation on this. And he said, says that humility came to mean the noble choice to forego status, to deploy your resources, and use your influence for the good of, the, of others. So how does humility go from being that despised virtue or character trait to something that is highly valued in society? And he argues that the first text ever written on humility, the way that we have come to understand it, the first one in history, it can be dated precisely. It's what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2 verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Prior to Jesus, this understanding of humility didn't exist. And it wasn't so much what he taught. What he taught, of course, was extremely important, completely aligned with who he was, what he was called to be, to do. But what the world had to wrestle with was the way that he lived, the fact that he actually went to the cross and died a shameful death. The church had to wrestle with it. How could the Son of God come to earth and be crucified? Well, if you read the Gospel of John, you realize that Jesus understood who his father was. He understood what his calling was, what God had called him to do, why he was here. He understood his identity. He understood who he was. And because he knew his father and he knew why he was here, understood who he was, he was able to pour out his life for others in love. And Jesus calls us to be like him. We serve the same Father. We are to understand who we are in Christ. Accepted, loved. By the grace of God we have been saved. We are now a part of the family of God. We're here by grace. Nothing we can do will make God love us more, accept us more. We are loved and accepted. Rooted in love, Paul says in Ephesians 3. And if we understand that, we're able to pour ourselves out for others, be humble, live for the well-being of others, use whatever God has given us for the good of others. The Spirit of Christ lives within us, enables us to live in this way. This humility is aligned with our calling. So humility and then gentleness, another fruit of the Spirit. Gentleness is meekness. Often when we think about meekness, we associate it with weakness. But meekness is not weakness. A weak person is actually a strong person. The strong person is able to be a master of himself or herself and consider others without being concerned about personal reputation, without being concerned about personal gain. A meek person, again, is secure in Christ and able to consider the other. Wave one's rights. Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Humility and gentleness, or humility and meekness, they form a natural pair, and we see them in such a beautiful way in the life of Jesus. How does Jesus describe himself? Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. He says, Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. That was the heart of Jesus. And we're called to be like him. To walk with all humility and gentleness. And then with patience. Often we joke with one another, right? Like, don't pray for patience. Life's going to be hard. Don't, don't even ask for patience. Patience means to have a long temper, not a short temper patience means to endure the injuries inflicted by others it means to make allowance for the shortcomings of others to endure wrong rather than flying into a rage rather than desiring revenge it means to be long-suffering with those that aggravate us maybe sometimes you say to the Lord what I say I say Lord be patient with those that aggravate me why have you placed so many people in my life for my sanctification Lord Lord Is it necessary? With patience, bearing with one another in love, it's bearing with one another in love, it's just an amplification of what it means to be patient, to bear with one another. It's not passive resignation. It's actually to hold each other up. You know, if we're in a relationship, there will be conflict. That is just the way life is. Judy and I have been married for 33 years. If I said that... There has never been conflict in our marriage. You would know I'm lying. There is conflict when you are in relationship with people. It happens. The question is, what do we do when there is tension? To bear with one another is to hold one another up. To hold the tension, to stay in relationship because we value the other person. We value the relationship. We understand what God has called us to it's not passive resignation. It's not going, okay, whatever. Whatever. No, it's to be actively involved, to love, to accept people in their uni- uniqueness, their weakness, give them worth space because we're committed to what God has called us to. How do we grow in these things? I think a really practical way to grow is just to pray. Paul of course, praise for the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 3, 14 to 23. And you can read through that prayer and just apply it to yourself. As Paul does, we, we can bow before the Father and say, God, have mercy. Oh, Lord, may I know your love God, these three graces, they're not in my life the way that they should be. I lack humility. I lack gentleness. I lack patience. Oh, God, have mercy. Empower me by the Spirit. Strengthen me me in my inner being so that I might be humble. Paul says that God is able to do more than we could ever ask or imagine. And so how often we're in a situation where we think, oh, my, I don't see any possibility of there being reconciliation in this situation. Well, Paul, when he prays, he prays that God is able to do beyond anything we could ever ask or imagine, and so ask God for that. Ask that God might be glorified in your life, and Paul prays in the church. One thing that I do on a regular basis is I ask God, who do I need to forgive? And I find that, God is able to provide me with a list. I'm sometimes surprised by how many people are on my list. They're often close to me. And so you pray through that list. And say, Lord, enable me to forgive. I choose to forgive. Often the feelings aren't there. But you choose to forgive. You choose to bless. We are to bless. Call God's favor on those people. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And so we forgive because we've been forgiven. None of us deserve to be here. We've seen some wonderful examples of reconciliation of forgiveness in the history of the church recently. Uh, Hakan Tashtan was here in the spring, and he was talking about the Armenian genocide and the fact that Armenian believers and Turkish believers have come together to forgive one another, to bless one another, to pray for one another. That's the miracle of God's grace. Do we want to walk in the way that God has called us to? In Ephesians 4 and 5, Paul will talk about how this has worked out in single life, marriage, family life, workplace, workplace. You know, family life in the church its going to bring together people of different ethnicities if we are truly the church in Metro Vancouver. Different cultural backgrounds, different histories, different personalities, different attitudes, different visions, different strategies. Those differences are the beauty of being church. There will be times of tension. But if we are one in the Spirit, then there is a way for us to walk together for the glory of God. How should we walk? Paul continues in verse 3, walk eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. To be eager means to make every effort. And so we walk in a manner worthy of our calling with more than three efforts to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Often I think in a relationship, boy, if I've tried three times, that's over the top. I've done more than I ever should do. Paul says, make every effort, spare no effort. No room for a wait-and-see attitude. Engage with your mind, with your will, with your emotions, with all your strength. Maintain the unity of the Spirit. You see, the unity of the Spirit is not something that we create. We don't have a meeting and decide to be one. God creates it. It's given by the Spirit. It's a gift. The Spirit establishes the unity. We are to make unity every effort to maintain the visible unity of the spirit in the bond of peace what binds us together well if you go back to Ephesians chapter 2 Paul talks about Jesus himself being our peace if we are in Jesus then we have been reconciled to God and the possibility exists for us to be reconciled to one another in Jesus he's our peace he holds us together we're members of the same family. You see, we as a church, we've been designed in a particular way to be the display of God's goodness to the world around us and to the principalities and powers of the air. We are to live with divine purpose. Now, is this apostolic command something that some, we sometimes just choose to ignore? Should rivalries between individuals or groups be permitted to fester for years? Are we eager for unity among evangelicals today? Are we eager? Are we making every effort to be one? I'm speaking of those that confess Jesus as Lord. Those that have been reborn of the Spirit. Are we eager to walk in unity with them? I remember being in Egypt, just after the Arab Spring, this was uh, the beginning of 2012, and the church in Egypt at that time felt that it was on the wrong side of history, that it was on the margins. But a beautiful thing was happening all over Egypt. Christians of different denominations were gathering together for worship, for prayer, to proclaim the gospel. They were evangelizing. I heard about this in city after city. In Cairo, on the outskirts of Cairo, up in the caves at Garbage City, ten to 15,000 believers gathered to worship, to proclaim the gospel, the largest gathering in Egyptian history of Christians. Now, do we need to suffer persecution in order to become one, or is it there for us today? This weekend, about 150 pastors from across Metro Vancouver gathered here at Willingdon to consider what it would look like to have an evangelistic event next March in Rogers Arena, Festival of Hope. Billy Graham Association is providing uh, uh, a lot of the organizational detail around that. Can we walk as one? Can we make every effort to maintain the unity so that Christ might be glorified and that many might come to faith? You know, the walking worthy, it's worked out in the realm of concrete relationships. And the first mark of being a part of God's new family is a transformed character. We walk with humility, with gentleness, with patience. We make every effort to maintain the unity. Now, where the fruit of the Spirit and eagerness are absent, there is no structure that will keep us together. God has gifted us, however, with a solid foundation for unity. What is that solid foundation? Well, look at verses 4 through 6. They reveal our foundation. The word seven, it appears, I'm sorry, the word one, it appears seven times. Seven references to one. Three times, the one refers to a person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Four times, the one will refer to a member of the Trinity. We walk in a manner worthy of our calling with three persons living in unity, the triune God. You see, there's one body and one spirit. The body of Christ, it's enlivened by the same spirit. It is the spirit that makes us one, as I said. Indwelt by the same spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greek, slaves are free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. We're made up of many parts, but we're one. We're diverse, but we're one. Because of one spirit. Then Paul writes, verse 4, Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Of course, when we entrusted ourselves to Jesus, we were born to a living hope by the Spirit. I believe this clause it actually points forward to the one Lord our one hope is rooted in our call to the same Lord who granted us forgiveness of sins who gifted us with eternal life and so we're to live in alignment with that eternal hope expectantly waiting to see all things united in Christ one Lord one faith one baptism one faith in Jesus Christ one baptism into Christ Galatians 3:27 and 28 For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ There is neither Jew nor Greek there is neither slave nor free there is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus And so when we deposit our faith in Christ we entrust ourselves to him we're regenerated by the Holy Spirit When we're baptized into Christ we're baptized into a spiritual union Our spiritual union with Christ through the Spirit makes us one body, one living family. And then we have one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One Father. Now, when Paul writes these words, are we to understand that he has a bit of a a pantheistic view of things? God is in everything. There is a spiritual reality that animates all things. I don't believe that that's what he's saying here, because in the context he's talking about God's family, and so as children of God, as sons and daughters of Abraham, we have one Father who is over all. He is sovereign. He's ruling over God's people. He's through all. He's pervasive. His presence is pervasive. He sustains us. He works through us. Paul will flesh that out in chapter 4, verses 7 to 16, how God desires to work through us. Every member equipped for ministry, carrying on the ministry of Jesus. And he's in all. He indwells us, the same spirit living within us. Question, can Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be separated? Is that a possibility? Could Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be separated? Well, the answer is no. From all of eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been one. And they always will be one. Now, if we are born of the Spirit, brothers and sisters in Christ, spiritually, can we be separated? Is that a possibility? John Stott writes the following The unity of the church is as indestructible as the unity of God Himself. I believe that what John Stott says is in alignment with what Paul is teaching. This apostolic teaching that we have a solid living foundation that unites us one Father, one Lord, one Spirit. And we have been united by the Spirit of God. And so if my brother is in Christ, my sister is in Christ, inhabited by the same Spirit, spiritually we will never be able to separate. Our unity is as sure as the unity of God. And we are to make every effort to maintain the visible unity of the church. Can we live in a manner worthy of our calling? Is it even possible? I think I've told this story here before. But it illustrates, I believe, so perfectly what we're talking about. A number of years ago, I was in Kinshasa. And I was representing a mission agency. Our mission was relating to a Congolese church and there was obvious tension. And there had been tension over a long, prolonged period of time. So we gathered in Kinshasa to work on our relationship. And the facilitator of our meeting, the first question he threw out was, okay, why don't you men and women share from the scriptures what God has been teaching you? And so one by one, we shared what God had been teaching us through the word. And after doing that, we realized, okay, we read the same scriptures, and it seems like we follow the same Jesus. You know, North Americans and Congolese, we're we're very different, wonderfully different. After doing that, the facilitator asked, okay, what do we need to confess? And we looked at each other for a moment in silence, and then one North American said, actually, I am really frustrated by this relationship. I'm disappointed. I'm angry. Confessed how he was truly feeling. And then Congolese began to confess. We all did. After that time of confession, we prayed for one another. Forgave one another. And then one of the Congolese leaders says, you know, we need to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So I ran down to the street together with The Congolese mission director, I'm scrambling around looking for grape juice and bread. That's what we look for, right? And the Congolese mission director said, forget about it, Ray. We'll buy Coke. (laughs) So we bought Coke and bread. I don't think Coca-Cola thought about the Lord's Supper when they invented Coke. But there we were, Coke and bread. We celebrated the Lord's Supper, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope. And after celebrating the Lord's Supper the Congolese started to sing. And they sing so beautifully. They sang and sang. And I could hear my wife whispering, Ray, don't sing. You'll ruin it. We started our meeting at 10 a.m. They stopped singing at 6 p.m. So eight hours later, there's a sense of unity in the room. And in 15 minutes, we decided all that we needed to decide in order to continue to walk together and be on the mission that Jesus had called us to. And so I ask again, is that there for us? Does Paul just write beautiful words here or could it be a reality among us when he says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling? Does he not call the Ephesians to that because it is there for them if they want it. We can actually walk with humility, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love because the Holy Spirit abides within us and we follow the same Lord. We can walk in this way because our foundation is sure, one Father, one Lord, one Spirit. We can make every effort to maintain the unity for God's glory and in alignment with the prayer that Jesus prayed for us. Listen to Jesus' prayer for us in John 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become listen to this perfectly one. This is Jesus praying for us, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Let's stand for prayer. So Father, we are... Humbled by this prayer. Jesus, we're humbled by your prayer for us. And we recognize, I recognize, that we so often fall short. And yet you have called us to yourself. Thank you, Father, for drawing us to yourself. Thank you, Jesus, for salvation. You've set us free for freedom. You've called us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. You've called us to maintain the unity of the Spirit, this gift of unity. Make every effort, oh God, help us. Have mercy on us. May we bear with one another in love, your love. Jesus, may we walk as one so that the world might know that you were sent, that you were sent by the Father out of love for us. Jesus, we don't deserve to be here, but we are thankful that by your grace you have saved us and recreated us in you to live in a new way, to be family for your glory. Thank you. Empower us by your spirit, we pray. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.